Open your Bibles up to Titus. We're going to be in chapter 2. This morning, if you have one of our... Um, if you have one of our welcome table Bibles, it's on page 1058. Just a quick recap, Titus is a young pastor who's overseeing a number of churches on the island of Crete, which that island still exists today. You can Google that, look it up. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to Titus to help him strengthen those young churches and to help them grow into healthy bodies of Christ. And in our passage today, we're going to see the spiritual vulnerabilities of these young churches and, and the need to prioritize healthy leadership in them. And we're going to find that the dangers that they faced back then are the same dangers that we face today. And so what they needed is also what we need. And so I want to read, I said we're in chapter two, we're in chapter one, but the letter's like a page long, so you should be there still. Uh, I'm going to read Titus 1. 5 through 16, and then pray once again and we'll dig in. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It's necessary to silence them. They're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even just in the reading of it, truth has been proclaimed, and your spirit can take that and work it into our hearts already. We pray, Lord, that as we work our way through this, that your word would continue to be proclaimed, and that you would use your spirit to open our eyes to wonderful things here to compel us in love toward greater obedience to you, greater dependence upon you, greater confidence in you because of the grace that you've given us to do exactly that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, be honest. How many of you have a to-do list with unfinished projects or tasks on it? You don't have to tell me how long it is, okay? Uh, things, things on that list, chances are you, you've probably prioritized them in some way, shape, or form, right? And what we tend to do, I think, or what we're tempted to do at least, is when we look at our list, is to prioritize things uh, by how easy they are to do instead of how important they are to do. Does that make sense? In our passage today, Paul's going to tell Titus that he needs to take care of something that's very important 
but it's not super easy. And because it's something that directly impacts the health of the churches on the island of Crete, and it's something that we also need to pay attention to because it's something that we need to prioritize for the same reason. And so, so here's what our, our text is going to present for us this morning. This is what, what Paul is getting at. We need to appoint a group, group, emphasizing the group, of godly elders to lead God's church in the truth of God's gospel. Why? Because lawlessness and legalism will always be dangerous to the church. So let's look at verse 5 through 9 again. Paul says this to, to Titus, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Now, we need to keep a, a, a few important things in mind as we work through this passage. All throughout the New Testament, the terms elder, overseer, and pastor are used interchangeably to refer to the same role, okay? Same role in the church. Each term highlights different aspects of that role, like wisdom and teaching or administration or care for God's flock, but they're all ultimately talking about the same thing. We tend to inadvertently separate them when we refer to pastors as the full-time paid guys and elders as the unpaid laymen. But paid or unpaid, they're one and the same. Pastor, elder is the same function in the church. So when Paul uses the term elder and overseer interchangeably in verse 7, we can hear those words and we need to think, same role. He's talking about the same thing. He hasn't changed. It's the same role in the church. Same office. And then there's another term in verse 7 that the ESV helps highlight. It says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now that term steward is what the CSB is referring to as an overseer of God's household. Paul's reminding Titus and us that elders are not the owners of the church. Christ is. God is. And he's entrusted the care of his family of believers to these men who must be faithful to carry out that stewardship, that, that leadership and care. And so we need to remember that Paul is writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These aren't just Paul's words. These are God's words through Paul. Paul began this letter to Titus, if you remember, by calling himself a servant of God and an apostle of Christ. He's speaking God's words under God's authority. And so these qualifications are not just what Paul requires of an elder, but they're qualifications of what God requires of every elder that he makes a steward of his church. And we're going to get to these qualifications in a second, but we need to see the weight first of the importance that God places on establishing a plurality of elders in his church. In verse 5, we learn that there are churches in every town on the island of Crete. But these churches are still in the early stages. They're young church plants, and they're missing something, something that needs to be set right that was left undone. 
But Paul doesn't tell Titus to get a, a children's ministry going or a women's Bible study or a men's breakfast or an outreach event. And while all of those things are good and useful in the life of the church, Paul says there's something else on the to-do list that's extremely important. He tells Titus that the priority must be to appoint elders in these churches because leaving that undone directly affects their health as gospel-centered congregations. Now, this is a timely word for us as a young church plant. When you, when you think about what's been left undone here at Redeemer, is establishing a plurality of elders at the top of your list? It's really easy. It's really tempting for us to default to ministry programs and events as the priority. And I'm not about to say those things are unimportant. I love those things. I've served in many different ministry areas over my, my tenure as a pastor and as a volunteer in, in, in church life. And I'm especially for those things when they're gospel-driven and in line with our mission. I'm eager. I want you to know that I'm eager to get those things established because they provide tangible ways for each member of the church to do his or her part to build the body up in maturity and reach the lost. And, and I know, I, I'm sure that you're eager too. That's good. I want that to be the case. But I think probably in that eagerness, you've been wondering why I, uh, uh, we haven't put more energy toward those things and focus on getting those ministries in place. And that's probably led you, honestly, to be frustrated with me at times because it might seem like I haven't given much thought to them. I want you to know that's fair. I haven't been very forthright in giving vision toward those things. Some of you have shared your frustrations with me, and I want you to know that I thank God for you. I thank God for you and the care that you have for me that you would be willing to, to have an uncomfortable conversation with me in gentleness and humility. That's a display of the gospel. But for anyone who's still left in the dark, I think today's passage gives me the opportunity to clarify what's been on my mind and heart for this church over the last year and a half, and actually longer than that. I'm convinced that Scripture shows that the ministries of the church are carried out by the members of the church. And the members of the church are partners in the gospel. People who, whose confession and, and conduct make it clear that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior who commit themselves to one another in love and share mutual responsibility for their ongoing growth in Christ together. And Ephesians 4 says that God has given them pastors and teachers to help them do that, to equip people for the work of the ministry. And so starting with that end goal of every member being an active gospel participant in the life and ministry of this church, I worked backwards and asked, what are the foundational things that we need in place in order to reach that goal? Well, first, we have to be absolutely clear on who Jesus is and what the gospel is. That's why we went through the gospel of Mark, the very beginning. And then we need to make sure that we're clear on what the church is, God's gospel people, and what it means to be a member of it. So that's why we went through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And with those things uh, foundationally in place, then we can really begin to focus on what discipleship in the church and evangelism in the community looks like. That's why we're going through the letter to Titus, because he's going to help us do that. 
So from the very beginning, my desire has been to lay the biblical foundations necessary for us to be a healthy church that glorifies Christ through ongoing gospel ministry, both inside and outside these walls. But from the very beginning, and I want you to hear this from from my own heart, one of the deepest burdens I've had, one of the strongest scriptural convictions that has weighed on my mind has been Titus 1.5. To set right what has been left undone. This is a matter of obedience to God's word. It's a priority. I'm currently the only elder in this church, but Paul makes it clear that in every church, they need to have a plurality of elders who can share the shepherding load together, who can lead the church in God's truth and godly living, who can help us stay on gospel tracks, if you will, and not veer to, to the side one way or the other, especially as we add uh, different ministries and things. This is the constant pattern of church leadership all throughout the New Testament. And the qualifications Paul lists here are all things that have to be observed over time in order to affirm them in the life of a potential elder. And so that's why church membership is so important. Because it's, it's, as a covenant member, you're placing yourself under the long-term care of the elders of the church. And as a covenant member, you have a role then to play in making sure that those who are charged with your care are men who do so according to God's word. Paul's letter to the Galatians, the whole letter, is based around his rebuke to the church members for allowing leaders to come in and give them a different gospel. Church members have a responsibility. In the same way that you care about your own spiritual health, you also should care about the spiritual health of those who lead you because Hebrews 13, 7 calls you to carefully observe the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith as they speak God's word to you. And on the flip side, down in verse 17 of the same chapter in Hebrews, it says that elders keep watch over people's souls as those who must give an account to God for the shepherding care that they provide. How can they know whom they're accountable for if there's no recognizable commitment on the people's part to be shepherded by them? So I know I've sounded like a broken record over the last several months about church membership, but this is why because I want you to see the importance that Scripture places on it. Paul places a great deal of emphasis here on getting elders established in churches that are established in order for those churches to grow in godliness according to the gospel. But that's difficult to do if you don't know who's in the church. Those churches in Crete probably didn't have a formal membership covenant like we do. But they were committed to one another nonetheless. They knew who was in and who was out. Now, we live in a day and age where social media makes it easy for a Christian to believe that he or she can consume all kinds of content without giving any sort of commitment. But that's not how the church works. The biblical picture of the church is a place where we commit to knowing one another and growing together in the gospel of God's grace to us through Jesus Christ. That necessarily requires that we let each other in to the nitty-gritty to the nooks and crannies of our lives over the long haul. That's so important. Not just for like Sunday morning and then see ya. We do have a membership covenant here at Redeemer because it helps the elders, right now me, Lord willing, more, helps us know who we're responsible for. 
and it helps you understand the commitment that you're making, and it clarifies the privileges and the responsibilities that you have as a committed member here. We can't set right what's been left undone and establish more elders if we don't have committed members that are carefully watching the lives and the doctrine of those men and making sure those things are in line with the gospel. Several of you have signed that covenant and you've committed yourselves to contributing to the spiritual health of this church. If you haven't done that, if we haven't talked about membership, if you haven't gone through the class, why not prayerfully consider that this morning? And then let's talk about it. As a church, our to-do list needs to have this as a top priority. We need to set right what's been left undone and establish a plurality of elders here. But we need to make sure that they're godly men who are themselves led by Christ so that they can lead others toward greater dependence upon Jesus, greater confidence in Jesus. And so for those of you that have signed the covenant, those of you that are members of Redeemer here, this passage will be an especially helpful guide for us then to prayerfully keep in mind as we think about who. Who is the Lord raising up among us to help shepherd this church? And then one last thing before we get into this list of elder qualifications. We need to note that Paul assumes male-only eldership here, but he develops the biblical basis for it in 1 Timothy where he makes it clear that the role isn't for all men, but only for those men to whom God gives the desire, the qualifications, and the calling to carry out the role in humble submission to Christ. But because we're looking at Paul's letter to Titus, we need to stick with what he's elaborating on here in this passage. And so if you have questions about why he limits the role to called, qualified men, I'd encourage you to prayerfully read through 1 Timothy, and then I would love to talk more about it with you. The last thing I want to be is some domineering jerk. But I do want to be faithful to what Scripture seems to proclaim. Now, let's take a look at these elder qualifications that Paul lists here. Again, reminder, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, he says that an elder must be blameless. Now, this is the summary word for everything else that he lists here. Blameless covers all of the things that he lists specifically in the verses that follows. It means to be above reproach, unable to be accused of any wrongdoing or anything immoral or damaging to one's character, somebody that's full of integrity. Being blameless, super important, does not be, mean to be sinless. If that were the case, no one would qualify except for Jesus, and he already is at the head of the church. So what does it mean or, or, or what it does mean is that there's, go, there's ongoing evidence of gospel transformation in that man's life to the extent that no one can rightfully accuse him of ongoing immorality or serious sin. You know what the only thing that an elder in the church ought to be regularly accused of? It's growing in his dependence and confidence in Christ. Paul says that that should be true in every area of his life from the way he leads his family to how he's seen in the church and out in the community. Husband of one wife, literally translated one woman man. Paul's not requiring marriage here, but he is requiring faithfulness where marriage relationships exist. And on Crete at that time, the, most of the men who were eligible for eldership were married and had children. And so the point here is that if he is a husband and a father, he needs to be a faithful one. 
Husband of one wife also does not mean that a man cannot be an elder if his first wife has died and he has since been remarried. Nor is Paul necessarily prohibiting eldership for a man who is divorced and remarried. That would make for really slim pickings in the island of Crete, where they're not necessarily known for their previous integrity, as we'll see in verse 12. Men in these circumstances would need to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. The concern here is that there's evidence of gospel transformation in a man's relationship with his wife and his children. And faithfulness is a marker of a man being transformed by the gospel. Paul says faithful children. That, that phrase can be translated as believing children. Some scholars think that, uh, that the kids need to be believers. Uh, I, I, would, I would lean toward the side that Paul isn't necessarily requiring that here. Although that's ideal. If we know how the gospel works, we know that it's impossible for a father to guarantee that his children will will come to salvation in Christ, even as he's shepherding them toward Christ through his teaching and and example. No more than a pastor or elder can guarantee that all of his people will continue in faith. Christ can do that. Christ does that. Only God can enliven these children's hearts to believe and follow him. In 1 Timothy 3, Another list of of qualifications. Paul only requires that the children are well-behaved and submissive to their father's authority. So the main concern here, back in Titus, is that the children are not blatantly immoral and defiant. They have respect for their father, for their family, for their mother. Paul says to Timothy, if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he know how to care for God's church. That's, that's the point. That's the idea. And that's what he gets at here in verses 7 and 8 with Titus. As an overseer of God's household, as a steward of the church of God, an elder must once again be blameless. He's summarizing it again. Blameless in the family, blameless in the church, blameless in the community. So here's, here's what he can't be. If he's arrogant, he'll lord his authority over people. He won't sacrifice for the good of the body. If he's hot-tempered, he won't have patience to walk slowly side-by-side with people, helping them grow in their dependence on and confidence in Christ. He won't be gentle and loving when he has to deal with difficult people and difficult situations. And he won't be willing to receive loving rebuke from others. If he's an excessive drinker, he won't show self-control. And if he doesn't have control over his own impulses, how then can he help others gain control over theirs? Paul isn't saying that an elder can't have any alcohol, but he has to know when it's too much and be able to stop before he reaches that point and use wisdom and discretion on what kind of appearance that gives to others, seeking to cause no one to stumble in it. If an elder is a bully, he's not just going to be impatient when people come to him. That dude's going to instigate some fights. He's going to be mean. He's going to pick fights with others. He's going to be prone to violence and abuse, not gentleness and love. If he's greedy for money, he's serving a different God than the Lord Jesus Christ. His love for money is an evil root that produces evil fruit. He'll exploit the church for his own personal gain rather than giving himself for the church's benefit. A man that can be described by any of these things in verse 7 is not fit to be an elder of God's church. Instead, 
Paul says in verse 8. He should be hospitable, welcoming to strangers and newcomers, inviting people into his home and being approachable to everyone, having a good reputation with those outside the church as well as those inside the church. He should love what is good. What's good? God is good. His word is good. His spirit is good. His church is good. His people are good. And he's prepared good works for them to do. That's a main theme in, in, the, in the letter to Titus, to devote ourselves to good works. An elder needs to love all these things and everything else that God calls good. He should be sensible, avoiding extremes in behavior. He needs to be a moderate man. He should be righteous, upright in his conduct, just, fair, committed to following God's word in obedience. He should be holy, marked by growing in Christ-likeness and devotion to God. He should be self-controlled, disciplined in his behavior, and governing his emotions, impulses, and desires. Everything that Paul has listed so far revolves around the character of an elder. Verse 9 addresses what an elder must be able to do, and it's extremely important. Ancient writers often place items at the beginning or the end of a list to emphasize their importance, and that's what Paul's doing here. This is the last thing on the list. An elder must hold to the faithful message of the gospel as taught by the apostles. That means he needs to be a man of the Bible. He needs to study it. He needs to believe it and trust it. He needs to cling to it for life so that he'll be able to promote the health of the church by faithfully teaching God's word and refuting those who contradict it with their false teaching. And Paul elaborates on that in this next section. Look at verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They're ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God. They deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Crete is rampant with false teachers spreading a message that's contrary to the gospel. They're leading people away from the truth. Paul says there are many of them, and they are rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception. We don't fully get the, um, the connotation in the English, but Paul's not really pulling any punches here. That, that full of empty talk phrase means worthless windbags. You ever call anybody that? Probably not to their face, right? And you know who the worst ones are? They're the Jewish teachers that teach circumcision is still required for salvation. So what he's saying. These men believe their own false message. They're self-deceived. In verse 16, Paul says that they claim to know God. They're, they're trying to be pious. But they deny him by their works because their works are not produced by faith. Any work that's done apart from faith is not good. It ultimately, ultimately ends up as worthless. You see, their doctrine about God doesn't lead to true devotion to God. That's why they need to be silenced. 
They're teaching false doctrine in order to, pr- to profit off of their listeners. They're dishonest and they're greedy for money and their teaching isn't leading to gospel transformation in these households. It's leading to destruction in these households. Epimenides was a Cretan and a prophet for the false god Zeus around 600 years prior to Paul's time. And Paul quotes Epimenides here. Listen, if you're going to criticize a people group, you should do it using their own people, right? I mean, that's just a tip. Paul quotes Epimenides' assessment of his own people in verse 12, and then Paul just quickly agrees with it. Certainly there were exceptions to this, but it's safe to say that the Cretans had a bad reputation. They're known as liars. They couldn't be trusted, and people assumed they couldn't be changed. That's one of the reasons that Paul mentions that God cannot lie back in verse 2, to show that God's gospel message can be trusted, and it's powerful enough to bring about change in even the worst people. Evil beasts, that's not super flattering either. Cretans were known for their violent and immoral behavior. They're like, they're like brutish people. They're, they're, they're wild animals. And they were also all play and no work. They were lazy gluttons. The only thing they exerted energy for was excessive self-indulgence. These people were treacherous. They were unjust. They were self-absorbed. They had corrupted hearts and corrupted desires. They were lawless people with lawless living. And that made them primed for the transforming work of the gospel. But it also made them targets for false teachers who wanted to coerce them into outward godly behavior without dealing with the inward corruption. And those false teachers were the Jewish Cretans who leaned heavily on Jewish myths, stories about their ancestors, who leaned heavily on human commands and traditions, and they rejected the truth of the gospel. They were legalistic with legalistic living emphasizing Jewish food laws and ceremonial purity. But listen, legalism makes for a really poor change agent to lawlessness. It emphasizes human effort to gain God's favor. And those from the circumcision party claim to know God and to be more pious than the rest of the Cretans, but they failed to see that they themselves were just like those that they were trying to coerce. They were defiled and unbelieving. To those whom Christ has cleansed on the inside, food laws, ceremonial cleansing, those things don't matter. To the pure, everything is pure and fit for use in glorifying God. What God has called clean and good, we're free to enjoy with thanksgiving to him. But these false teachers have defiled minds and defiled consciences. They're corrupt on the inside. They, they work so hard to appear pure on the outside the inside looks exactly like the rest of the Cretans. Paul uses really strong language in verse 16. He says they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work because none of their works are produced from faith. Romans tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. Paul is not just calling these men this. These are God's words. They're useless in their current condition for God's glory. But listen, they are not beyond hope. Paul's solution for dealing with these false teachers is for Titus to rebuke them sharply. But notice the reason why. So that they may be sound in the faith. 
Paul expects the gospel to transform even the false teachers because that's what the truth does for anyone who comes to understand it by God's grace through faith. False teaching is like a poison, spiritual poison that attacks and kills the body. But sound teaching is like spiritual medicine that protects the body and promotes good health. The word for rebuke in verse 13 is the same word for refute in verse 9. Paul doesn't want Titus to be the only one that does this. This is a job for the elders of the church too. So that the body of Christ stays healthy and the false teachers come to true faith that leads to true godliness through their knowledge of the true gospel. A church cannot thrive on legalism or lawlessness. And with the advent of the internet, we have false teachers who communicate these ways of living and they have the capacity to do major damage in churches without ever stepping foot inside the buildings. They have the ability to ruin entire households through the tiny smartphone. That's why the church needs leaders who have experienced the transforming power of the gospel and continue to depend on God's grace so that they can teach the church about what truly changes our corrupted hearts and leads us and lead us to genuine godly living. Now, after reading through all of this list of elder qualifications, we ought to immediately recognize that no man is capable of achieving these standards by his own effort. Zero. But just look at what the gospel is capable of. The gospel takes liars and false teachers and makes them sound teachers in God's truth. It turns evil beasts into holy and righteous and self-controlled lovers of what is good. It changes hot-tempered bullies into sensible men who are hospitable toward others. It enables lazy gluttons and greedy men to become blameless and faithful overseers of their families and of God's household. This is the gospel transformation. And that's because the gospel shows us the inability of lawlessness and legalism to restore the relationship with God that we defiled by our own sin. You see, we need God to restore us to himself, and he did that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who was not only blameless, but he actually was sinless and still is. When he faced the ultimate temptation, he showed the ultimate self-control, and in arrogance, crushing humility, he willingly bore the shame and guilt of our sin when he hung on the cross to rescue us from the righteous wrath of God that we deserve. We sang about that. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father's will and he rose from the grave in power so that any rebellious sinner, anyone, from the lawless to the legalistic can receive Christ's righteousness and be made holy by relying on him for salvation instead of themselves. You see, Jesus is the faithful message of Scripture as taught. He is the truth of God that makes us sound in the faith. He is the one who purifies us on the inside and makes us fit for use in the advancement of his kingdom. Paul isn't just giving a list of generic qualifications to look for in an elder candidate here. He's showing us how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms the lives of legalists and lawless men and turns them into godly leaders in his church. The ESV Gospel Transformation Bible says this about this passage. Elders exist on account of the gospel. Elders are gospel men. Amen. I love that. A plurality of gospel men are necessary for the health of the church. This is why Paul's first order of business for Titus is to get elders established 
in every church that's established on the island of Crete. And it's why we need to make it a top priority to set right what's been left undone here at Redeemer. And as we look forward to establishing new ministries here together, let's also be eager to do the long-haul work, to do the work that God has already given us to do, the, the intentional work of committing to one another for the long haul and growing in the Lord together in the prayerful and patient work of establishing healthy leadership here. Because lawlessness and legalism will always be dangerous to the church, we need to appoint a group of godly elders to lead God's church in the truth of God's gospel. Men who are themselves led by Christ so that they can lead others toward greater dependence on and confidence in Christ. Men who know they're unqualified for the role without the transforming power of God's grace through the gospel. Men who can encourage the body with sound teaching and who can refute those who contradict it, not to elevate themselves over anyone, but to lift others to Jesus Christ himself so that they might behold him in all his glory as the head of the church, as the bride of Christ, see his goodness and be transformed. So as a church family, let's commit ourselves to prayerfully seeking the Lord's wisdom and direction. Let's ask him to show us who those men are here at Redeemer so that we can set right what's been left undone and be a healthy church that glorifies Christ through ongoing gospel ministry both inside and outside these walls. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ and your spirit in whom we have all the riches and blessings and the spirit who applies those things to our lives. Lord, we need your help. We want to be a church that glorifies you for the long haul. So lead us. Help us continue to grow in obedience to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.